1: Well, hello and welcome to Food for Thought, a podcast gap us for in a multiracial mix. of Queer writers gather around the table to talk about sex, <gasps> identity, culture, mm. <laughs> what we like to read and who we like to read. Food for Thought, where Joe's farts are technically a hallucinogen. That is...
0: <laughs> <laughs> like everything I do, they are 80% rosé.
1: And just like that, I'm on a (laughs) 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 mind-altering substance.
0: (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Is is anyone watching and just like that? Has anyone seen the first? I saw the first two episodes.
2: I saw the first two episodes. I have not watched yet, but I have read spoilers, so I know (laughs) what
0: happens. That's actually (laughs) really good, Den. That is, like, really impressive for you. You're keeping up on the culture. I didn't realize
2: that we have it on our TV so I was like oh I'm gonna like buy HBO it was a whole thing. Anyway it turns out I
0: have it I just haven't had time to watch it yet. And just like that has absolutely killed three of my remaining brain cells. It is Mm -hmm. so dumb and it's even worse because it's trying not to be dumb Mm -hmm. but like like I've said about other television that I adore that is incredibly dumb sometimes you want to drink rosé and watch very stupid television.
3: Or for those of us who don't drink rosé walk very slowly on the treadmill in your pajamas and watch a stupid television show.
1: I'm going to admit this to everybody here. I am the den of Sex in the City because I've wow. never I've ever seen an entire episode. Wow, oh,
3: a gold star. Tibbs. <laughs>
1: wow. Wow. I've seen seen the clips online. I know the GIFs or the GIFs or whatever. I I, I know the important cultural touchstones, but I have never really engaged with that. This is is
0: the straightest thing you've ever admitted to, Teaves. I I have to say. I think
3: you should maintain your purity, though, because it's like a window that has closed. Because I actually think the Mm -hmm. new version Mm -hmm. is pretty much exactly as dumb as it was in the 90s, but we were all dumber in the 90s, and so we've aged out. Mm -hmm.
0: 100%. I think the thing about it is, is that, you know, Sex in the City in the aughts in the 90s was like horrible biphobic transphobic had some real issues but the show is just not capable i don't think of really addressing those issues and doing better um and i think the fact that they're trying to um is like almost worse than not trying to pretending that never happens
3: yep yep (laughs) i feel like i got the feeling watching it like i do in like a diversity training when the white person is like, but I know I'm racist, so therefore I can't be racist. See? (laughs) Give me a cookie. (laughs) Mm, mm, mm.
2: Yes. I feel like every time I watch, like, a clip of it, because, again, I haven't watched it, although I will watch it. I'm super excited about the fashion. I love Nicole Ari Parker. It's going to be great. Like, I can see when they're talking to one of the characters of color, it's like I can see all Mm -hmm. of that in their Mm -hmm. face. In their eyes, their diversity training, their mm-hmm. this is important. What you have to say is important. Like it is, mm-hmm. it is, vi- it is very the help. <gasps> you was yes. kind. You was yes. smart. You was important. Yes. I will
3: say that um, all of the very intentionally included of color characters are also giving the best acting in the show. And also, Sarah Ramirez is fucking hot as per usual.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I remember going. I remember going over to my cousin Cece's house because he had HBO, and I always thought, like, oh, that's, like, the that's like the nasty oh, right, network, right, right. right? And I remember seeing Sex and the City. Oh, my God. And I pressed it, and I was like, oh, no, this isn't what I thought it was. What about... And I was like, oh, but, like, up next is Arless. Maybe that's going to get a little cheeky. In. No. <laughs> Teams, get us out
0: of here. Introduce <laughs> yourself, Please.
1: Uh, what is up? I am Tommy Teebs Pico, indigenous American poet, screenwriter, TV writer, and I will say I am now a hot sauce Ooh. aficionado. I wasn't before, but it had a recent uh, head cold, and I've been watching Hot Ones on YouTube incessantly, and I was like, everyone on that show, when they start eating hot sauce, they just, like, snot just pours from their head. So I started eating a shit ton of spicy stuff, and it, my congestion was a thing of the past.
2: I, you know, Tommy, I need some good hot sauce recommendations, actually. So we're gonna, you're gonna give me some. Um, I'm Den Michelle Norris, and I'm a reader, a writer, and a former figure skater. And quite simply, I am doing my best to stay COVID-free in these streets. It is, Ooh, it's, it's tough tough out rough there. right now. It is tough out there, but I'm doing my best. I am masking up again everywhere I go. We will see what happens. Um, and this is just my friendly little reminder to everyone to stay safe. We are still in this thing.
0: We are still in this thing. It won't go away. I am Joseph Osmondson, scientist, nonfiction writer, and everybody's like, I feel like there's a the feminist killjoy. I'm like everyone's COVID killjoy. Um that's that's what I do for my friends and family. And with us today, Fran couldn't make it. So we have incredible thought. She's been on the show before. 100 percent is our brand and ethos. Melissa Phoebos. Hi Melissa.
3: Hi, I'm Melissa Phoebos, your sober, queer, big sister, friend of the pod, nonfiction writer, professor, and retired professional fister.
0: Oh, now it's just a recreational thing.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Good. I was like, as long as you haven't stopped
0: fist like I I was
2: like, I don't want that. No, no, no,
3: no. Just Just for fun and not money. The best yes. part now. right now is
0: that, we, you know, we record on our iPhone so I can see Melissa's hand size, which I actually <laughs> look at on first dates to figure out yeah, if I want yeah. the person to be a fisting top or not. Very yeah, important.
3: It's XXL.
0: You can just call me Shovel. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, you got to work up to that one. You need a lot of poppers. All right thoughts. I'm going to give you the menu today. Today on the show, we're tackling all things altered, substances, getting fucked up, and being a sober thought. We start by asking what's gayer, weed, or beer, and we end by honoring the queen. Take it away.
1: Buck, 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 peacock. Uh, I'm feeling a little bit peckish. Like, uh... I think we should start the top of the show the way any good top should, with a little tease. Our uproarious appetizer segment, Amuse bouche. and to amuse our booshes, Joe, you got a game?
0: I do have a game. It is one of our classics. It is disgusting. It is homophobic. It's homonym. So a homonym, obviously, is words that sound alike. And in a homonym, we take a bunch of words that actually don't really sound alike, and we decide of the list, which is the gayest. Not the best the gayest are we ready to play absolutely
1: let's do this we're doing
0: a substance a substance uh edition for this week's substance theme all right first up weed the drug weeds the tv show weeds like the plants in the garden and weird al Yankovic.
1: i think the the persistence and the annoyingness of weeds in the garden makes that the gayest but we also the persistence and the annoyance of
0: Weird Al Yankovic. I
2: mean I was
3: going to say. Also, if anyone is like queering a genre, it's, it's Weird, Weird Al, Al Yankovic.
0: That's true. That's true. Wait, it is is he an honorary gay straight person? Is that how that works? Uh, he's also—I don't know. He's,
3: <laughs> We're like, do we, want, we him? want him? We don't want him.
0: <laughs> I don't. <laughs> he's, I do have to say he's also. But phenomenal. But that's also gay. Yeah. <laughs> Not being wanted is very very gay. Very gay. Very gay. Mm-hmm. He's phenomenal in the Showtime show "Work in Progress," which is an incredibly mm-hmm. gay show about a butch lesbian. Very gay. Very very gay. Great show. Watch it if you haven't. All right. Next up, LSD, the drug. LS De Palma, <laughs> producer Alex's <laughs> Instagram handle. LDS, the Mormon Church, or DSL as in digital subscriber line. Oh, that's and right! You know, that's
1: exactly what that stands for. That, I, I was going to say <laughs> l- lies, that that's what that stands for. <laughs> as an owner of plump, juicy DSLs, <laughs> same, same. Uh, same. That, that's that's the gist to me.
2: I feel like though DSLs, even though we have claimed them, can be used for many, many mouth activities so i'm gonna go with um ls de palma simply because <laughs> take one look at producer alex's instagram um between the bob um yes, the which hair, is like yes. not angled and the always chunky platform heels <laughs> yes i yes. gotta go with Alice de palma producer alex you're the gayest
3: yeah I think I'm gonna have to go with LDS, the Mormon church, <laughs> simply because it will make them so mad.
2: <laughs>
0: I mean, also that underwear that they wear.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: those skirts and aprons. Yeah, the apron, yikes.
0: Okay, next up, we're on prescription drugs: Lexapro, Lex Luther, Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, or <laughs> lechery.
1: I'm surprised you I know mean, what Lex Luthor even... is. <laughs>
2: He's a villain. A he's villains a, are gay, he's right? He's a villain. Yeah, villains. He's, yeah. Is he
3: the Batman villain? Yeah,
2: yeah. Or Superman. Superman. He's a Superman he's a super, I don't know yeah. how I knew that, actually. I mean,
3: that is a porn star name. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. He would 100%. murder that ass for sure. <laughs> I mean, also, though, I feel like, are you even gay if you're not on Lexapro?
0: True, so, no, very true. No, good point. No, I think I feel like gay is gay is like uh doing ketamine and queer is Lexapro. Lexapro <laughs> is the queer drug, You're the right? Queers, the You're gays right. I know are, are not on Lexapro, the queers I know are sucking up Lexapro, <laughs> like the world supply. Uh, With their DSLs. Uh, thought Thought Kenya and I always always talk about what the world is gonna be like when the Lexapro runs out. Oh. It's not gonna be good.
3: It's uh, gonna be like August in New York when all the therapists go on. <laughs> <back>. <laughs> We're
2: all just roaming the street in a cold sweat so with no true. idea what to do. <laughs> yeah, I
3: definitely. I mean, lechery is almost too on the nose. Yeah. Like, it's the original <laughs> <laughs> lechery. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> Next up, Rosé the Wine, Rosé the d- Drag Queen, Rosé the couleur Off Pink, Rose as in Rose Plants, or Rose from Golden Girls. Hands down, Rose from Golden Girls, for me.
3: I mean, she lived in a lesbian separatist community, so.
2: Yeah. In Florida in the 80s. (laughs)
3: We wouldn't last a minute. I feel like she
0: never knew what was going on, which is very gay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not getting the joke, never knowing what's going on, (laughs) just generally floating from room to room, clueless, very
1: gay.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Mob sweatsuits. Yes. Come on, and then you find out
1: that she's a slut. <laughs> yes, yes. You, do. yes right, you know, and much multiple to, times a day. Yeah, Blanche is like taken aback by how much of a slut Rose is. So I you look, can that's be what a slut for a, one
0: man. Mm-hmm. That's what they call a twist. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have a few more. Next up, hard seltzer. Hard cider, harder as in the New York City dance party, or getting hard?
3: I'm going to say hard seltzer because yeah. it has fewer calories.
1: <laughs> it really does. When it says yeah. 90 or 70 calories and no sugar, I'm like, I know who this is for. <laughs> mm. Yeah.
3: And it's not straight men. No. Hard cider, on the other hand.
1: Yeah.
0: I, wow, is that, is that it? Is that a consensus? Wow, that's that was fa- That's our fastest homonym ever. <laughs> Judge, judgments made. Okay, next up. My middle name, which is Shannon, Molly Shannon, as in the woman who was on SNL, the gay lawyer and activist Molly
1: McKay, or Molly the Drug? I think because I think I do know somewhere in the depths of my existence, I was aware that your middle name was Shannon, and yet I forgot. And it is so stark. I think that's gay for me.
3: Yeah, it really, it stands apart.
1: Yeah, that's it. (laughs) It I did not know. I didn't know
2: that your middle name was Shannon. Mm really? I don't think so.
0: Although I am the Rose of this group, so I could have forgotten, but... I was mocked relentlessly growing up for having a girl's middle name, relentlessly.
1: Who knows people's
0: middle names, though? Oh, but that's yeah. the thing is people yeah. would find out. It would be, like, on some school it's document. It's, like, Yeah. And then, like, it, it would mm-hmm. get around, and then they'd be like, oh, he's such a fag. He has a girl's middle name. And I was like... <laughs> I'm a fag like, for like, different reasons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, actually, the gayest thing on this list is the fact that it fully turned into my therapy session right now. We are reenacting that's in order right. to mm-hmm. undo that's childhood right. trauma. Childhood trauma is so gay. Mm-hmm. That's right. right. Last on the list... We have pills, Alanis Morissette's "Jagged Little Pill," or Alan Cumming. We wa- we worked our way into that one. I got very tired writing this last night. <laughs> okay, well, leave me alone.
3: It's it's not the '90s masterpiece "Jagged Little Pill," which is indeed a masterpiece, but it's also a very strange. It is very strange. Really, so I cannot vouch for that. I actually find.
0: So maybe it's because uh, as, as a little boy driving in the car, as a teenage boy driving in the car by myself and singing along to, about the men, you know, singing the woman's part about yeah. the men actually <laughs> felt like a really gay liberatory moment so for me.
3: Once again, Joe wins. The
0: gayest, <laughs> yes. Yes.
2: <laughs> the gayest childhood. Wow. does wow. she
1: go down on you in the theater? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, Alan
0: Cumming's pretty gay. His last name is Cumming.
3: He is extremely, extremely gay. gay.
2: I think pills are gayer than
0: Alan Cumming, though.
3: I pills know. are very gay. Because <laughs> the other thing about pills gay.
0: is they can be anything, right? They can be prescription pills that you need to stay alive, or they can be a lethal dose of ketamine. You know, you're really like, yes. is it a horse tranquilizer? Is it a depression drug? It's everything and nothing all at the same time. Pills. I will. Right.
2: I will never forget on our first Food for Thought sleepover, like, retreat, when I woke up and Joseph Shannon Osmondson was oh passed God, no. out on the cot, <laughs> surrounded by pills and
1: pill bottles on the
2: floor around them.
3: Oh, of the Dolls.
1: I know. That was they the other thing for- <laughs> I was gonna bring up is that calling pills dolls is also a thing. So that's very yeah. gay. That's <laughs> yeah. very gay. Yep. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: Oh, that was fun, I guess. <laughs> uh, thank you all for playing so very
1: much. <laughs> I think it's time we get to the meat of our discussion, the thought process spelled T-H-O-T. T-H-O-T. And uh, to sling our sausage patty this week is Joe.
0: Yeah, you know, today we're talking all about substances. On this show, we all know that producer Alex is a pothead, that I'm versed in that I like both rosé and IPAs, Den is absolutely a white wine lady, and Teebs is hard seltzer. Well, Melissa... Her best substance is an early morning long run. We all have different ways of getting high or altering our mentor states or relaxing or engaging in a routine or opening up to be with friends or taking hits of poppers to get fisted by Melissa for free because she doesn't do it for money anymore. <laughs> Shovels. Substances, substances are an ancient part of human life, like very, very old. We've been partying since the early Cenozoic era babies. Substances can be joyful, connecting us to various versions of ourselves and others, but they can also be destructive, coming between us and ourselves or us and our loved ones. So to jump off, I want to start light. And I wanted to ask because it's common, it is the most common human experience that we all have. What is your worst
1: edible story? Oh my God! Thanksgiving. Oh. The thing is, like, it was. I, I I went with my friend um, Max, and we went to go see Maxio, my good friend, friend of the pod. Uh, we went to go see Burlesque. So we we're gonna go get dumplings and go see Burlesque. That's so that's dating the wh- my experience. And I realized, like, <laughs> I only do I only did edibles on Thanksgiving because it took me a whole year to forget how horrible and, and the, <laughs> the experience was. And so we like take edibles. We go see. We we have like. I mean, it's just, it's the it's the classic story of the it's not working. Let me do more. And I just we had brownies mm, mm. and we were in the theater and nothing happened. And I was like, huh, that was like a weird bump, whatever. And then we get to the don't um we get to the dumpling place, at Vanessa's in in Chinatown, and I love that place. all of a sudden, so like. Good. It was like the mirror dimension in Doctor Strange. Like everything started collapsing in on me and I realized that I was at the front of the line and hadn't ordered for 20 minutes.
3: (laughs) And so then I just started saying
1: things and we got to our our corner and I was like, okay, this is our corner. We're like staying in this corner. This is like our corner. And then I was like eating this. I, I didn't realize until 10 minutes in that I was shoveling hot soup into my face and my entire mouth was like burned off. And then I was supposed to go to like um, a uh, Thanksgiving, like a like a friendsgiving or something like that. And I was trying to walk up the steps to it, and it felt like my feet were going into the uh, into the stairs. Oh, and this is a great discussion for for today. And I get inside and I look around and I realize it's. A sober Friendsgiving so like that (laughs) feeling of being like oh "Oh my god everyone knows I'm high I'm the only one like this in the whole world was magnified by a hundred and I'm just in the line shoveling cranberries onto a plate and I'm like (laughs) no one's gonna know that I'm (laughs) fucked up but then my friend Zan walked in really drunk and I was like oh my god drunk and then everyone was (laughs) I, yeah, and I did. I, it took me a year before I ate weed again. Hi, <laughs> teams. Mine, wow, mine was
0: mine was similar in that I my friend Jesse in DC uh, has an edible business, and um, you know, may, it's just I've done his edibles a bunch at this at this point. You just have to know how strong they are because they're also delicious, right? And you're like, let me eat this cookie. And if you eat the cookie, you will be high for 24 to 48 hours. <laughs> and it was like one of my first times doing his edibles and my partner at the time and I had gone to DC to see um, a musical that his friend was in. And so Jonathan was like have half a cookie before. And we each did half a cookie. And it ended up being a one-act immersive murder musical where like you're no. at a bar and, and the bar is the setting of the musical and the actors are all coming down Mm-mm. and like acting in right, like at your table, like acting as your server and stuff. And we were so high I couldn't sit up straight. I was like holding on to the table <laughs> so as not to like tip over. And then we were also the only people, the only gay people. The only people under 60 years old, and like he was one of the only people of color in the entire audience. So it was like all these straight old white people, and we were like hallucinating. (laughs) But then it was also hard to tell what was hallucinations and what was not because it was immersive murder musical theater in a bar. Hell. (laughs) Hell. Oh my God. Mm -mm. Not, Mm
2: -mm. maybe not the place for that. Yeah, you that
3: have- would have been a bad trip sober. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like,
0: yeah. I should have I should have rethought dating chorus boys at that
1: exact moment. <laughs> We're going to what? Yeah, yeah. who is the yeah. friend who brought you there? Because that yeah. is a yeah. crime against nature. Yeah. <laughs> nice. yeah, that person don't love yeah. you.
3: So <laughs> I'm gonna take you all on a little time travel journey Ooh. back to nineteen ninety-six. Wow. Because I have been sober for eighteen years, and so The one and only time that I did edibles, there were no gummies, there was no vaping. It was just like skanky weed that you cooked and put into a very bad cookie. And so, me and my best (laughs) friend Anna, who had both recently dropped out of high school, were at her alcoholic mom's house where you could sort of do whatever you wanted. And we cooked up the weed and made our cookies or like made the weed butter, made the cookies. And then we each ate one and waited like 15 minutes. And you can tell we had no mentorship because after 15 minutes when nothing worked, we ate another cookie. Oh, my God. And after another 15 minutes when nothing worked, we ate another cookie. Fast forward like five hours later, and we have decided that it is unethical for her to have a pet rat. She had this pet rat named Mephistopheles. Oh, please no. Oh, no. And we decided it's unethical. And we can't release him into the wild because we have rendered him incapable of protecting himself. So the only thing, the ethical thing to do is to murder Mephistopheles, cook him and eat him. I say this as a lifelong vegetarian. I was a teenage lifelong vegetarian. Spoiler alert, we did not kill the rat. We got totally distracted by like falling into the couch and not being able to crawl out for like 18 more hours.
0: That was one of the most stressful things that's ever happened on this show, and <laughs> let me tell you something yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah, Oh, my God. I think the thing about being that high on edibles is you have to constantly remind yourself you, you can't die of this because that's you right. feel like you're absolutely going to die of yep. this.
3: Yeah, yeah yeah and like or like it just will never end mm-hmm. right. Yeah. That was al- always my experience with acid too, or just like every time I became convinced it was never going to end. and I just I'm so I'm glad to know that edibles are still suck quite hard because I know I'm not missing anything. <laughs> thing, yeah, do no? you,
2: was that your first time also doing edibles? First and only uh,
3: well, yeah never <laughs> I mean, that would yeah. never.
0: <laughs>
2: An experience like that would probably ruin it for me too. Um, so my edible story is also the first time I did it. I was at McDowell, and um, which is which for anyone who doesn't know, McDowell is an artist colony um, that artists can go to and live in the woods and be fed. For, for, you know, usually a month or two at a time. And so I went for two months a few years ago and, um, one of my good friends there was leaving. And so she was like, I have, um, edibles and it was in butter. And so she just gave me like a piece of bread with some butter on it. And she was like, take this. She was like, it's going to take you an hour and a half before you feel anything. I waited a good hour and a half, felt nothing, really wanted to be high, had some more. And an hour later, I was so high. So McDowell is this gorgeous wooded space in New Hampshire. It's like, I don't know, hundreds of acres. There's usually, there's like a lot of cabins. They're all separated. So it's a really great place where you can like focus and go on solo walks by yourself and like listen to music or read or think or just do whatever. And I would do that a lot in the afternoons. But I decided it was a good idea to go for a walk. Fully was like, I fully was like, I am like, being adventurous right now i'm walking i y'all i was doing circles around my cabin i did not (laughs) i never got to a trail i never (laughs) got to a trail which is good good. because there are bears there like there are bears so it was good but i just like fully thought i was like walking in the woods like exploring new parts of the the colony of the grounds i did not go more than
0: five feet from my cabin (laughs) That's beautiful.
2: That's, oh, that's
3: that's the that's the nicest that's the sweetest story that we've heard in this truly, parade of horror shows. Truly, it really is. I once saw a coyote that was the biggest like canine creature I've ever seen at McDowell. So I'm very glad that you didn't wander off into the legit woods. I can imagine, I, although Den being getting so high, she's eaten by a coyote sounds fairly fitting. way <laughs>
0: for
1: her to go.
3: It's a very poetic. Yeah. yeah. I I
1: remember another time where I went over to my friend Roy's place in Portland and I'd typically go there to like, cause he had an extra room and I'd go there to write and just, you know, and then I'd sublet my place in New York and like, I'd just stay in Portland for a couple of months. And the first thing I always did when I got to Roy's place, cause Roy always had a candy dish and you know, I have a historically a sweet tooth, sweet tooth and, yes. uh, which I don't have anymore, but I did at the time. And I, every time I go there, I just like would bury myself in the candy bowl and just like eat, 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 eat. And like behind me was just like a parade of rappers. And I (laughs) did that, and then he was like, oh no, that was the weed candy. And I was like, are you fucking kidding? So I just went to the bathroom and tried to make myself throw up, and I was like, get out of me, get out of me. And then I was like, Roy, (laughs) and like Roy lived next to a a track, like like, you know, like, and and i was like roy i'm i'm sorry i'm cuz like roy was st- started talking and then i realized that i didn't know what roy was saying and i was like i have to stop you there i i <laughs> just have to go run i have to go outrun this and i ran for like 4 hours
0: <laughs> <laughs> i have to go outrun this that's me in depression every afternoon <laughs> Yeah. and i yep. and I, I never beat depression but she stays away i, I have a question i feel like we initially wanted to have this conversation because we were all so curious about the relationship between queerness, queer spaces, and substances. And I feel like I, you know, I actually really love queer nightlife and queer spaces. And it's sort of like where I'm allowing myself to have COVID risk or was up until recently to like put on a mask, go dancing, be around the fags. And I feel like more than before, even, you would be at a nightlife space, particularly more dancey nightlife space. And you'd look out and it was like, everyone was gone like zombies. Um, and it felt really rare to feel like you would see another person who felt sort of connected to the space. Do y'all feel like there's a connection between queer nightlife or queer spaces and then
1: substance use or sort of getting high? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Queer everything and in, in getting high. I mean, you know, I think there's like a unique trauma attached to being queer and like, you know, when you feel like you have something that can help you outrun to, to say this again, but to sort of outrun the trauma or the pain or the fear or whatever it is, that's bored itself into you. I mean, I feel like every queer person is vulnerable to substances like that. But then also like sometimes, I don't know, like my friend Ma has been telling me dispatches from New York and it sounds like people are just going Abe shit over there. (coughs) Yeah. I also New York is wild
0: right but now. I guess I, I want to amend it with the question of like, is it a bad thing? Like, I, I, I don't want to have this conversation. I want to have this conversation in a way where we talk about like substances as as things that can't like people can't have issues with. But also, I think one can have a healthy relationship to substances and pleasure. Um, and I don't think it always has to be destructive. So I want to allow space for that pleasure, but also try to understand where it it moves past pleasure and into something mm-hmm. that's harmful to ourselves mm-hmm. or our community.
3: Hmm. I can definitely, you know, with the sort of caveat that I definitely, I'm the person here, I think probably who's using of substances veered into the most problematic area. And I had to, I used it all up by the time I was 23. I'll say that. Um, But prior to that, there was like a period of years where I wasn't addicted. I was just a user and, you know, sort of jumping off what Tommy was saying, it's like, I spent so much of my life feeling like an outsider. Mm. And when I sort of moved out of my little hometown where I genuinely felt like I was the only queer person that I knew, um, except for my one girlfriend, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of tools for like cultivating community or finding people or being vulnerable in relationship. And Doing drugs with my little queer like party friends, my little raver friends, this was in the late 90s, um, was kind of a shortcut to intimacy. Mm -hmm. Like we would take Molly and talk about our trauma and talk about our feelings and make out with each other (laughs) and then fall asleep in a sweaty little naked puddle and wake up and we were like a litter of of kittens who had been raised, re-raised together. And I think that it was really facilitated by drugs because we wouldn't have known how to do that otherwise. We would have been way too awkward.
0: Yeah. What about you, Dee? Do you have thoughts about this?
2: I mean, I do. I feel like it's really, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm an expert in any of this, but I feel like it's really interesting because like such a big part of queerness is just feeling at odds like, especially early, sort of early on, you know, sometimes before you have language for it or before um, before you've accepted it, even if you do have language for it, it's like feeling at odds with everything around you all the time. And so I think that so much of the the link um, comes from just like we're often striving to find something, anything that makes us feel more comfortable, that makes us feel less at odds with everything around us all all the time. But I also think that like a lot of times the sort of willingness to go about things in a different way or to rethink things or to reframe things that that is a part of like healthy queer identity and a part of just moving through the world is sometimes what's at play in the fact that sometimes it's people who are part of our community that are more likely to reframe the conversation around um. Substances, you know, like for me, it's taken a lot of reframing. I, you know, was a kid in the '90s. I was a, I was a dare kid, like all that. Just say no. Just say no. All that, you know, Tipper Dick Gore, Dick sucking,
0: Nancy Reagan.
3: <laughs> I know. Thank Dick you, throw <laughs> See,
1: That was wild.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that was the most wild thing, by the way, that I've read forever. Um, it, or not not forever, but in a long time. That was pretty pretty extraordinary. I was like, wow, now we know why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mm-hmm. many questions were answered by that, anyway. But the point is, that, like, I grew up, you know, in that context, in that mindset. And, you know, I grew up in a middle-class Black family. And there's so much in that space around the fear of drugs. Because at that time, like... There was no thought about, I mean, there there were people thinking this, but there was no thought in my context, in my family about, oh, like there's maybe a reason why drugs are ravaging the black community in the way that they are. It was just, we have to do everything we can to keep our kids off the streets, safe from, you know, all the things that white people are telling us are the are the reasons why black people are suffering, right? And it was like drugs and gang violence. And so... When you're in a context in a family that sort of fought against all of these odds to get to this place where like they were comfortably middle class and they could they were like we're sending you to private school so we so that you're not near these kinds of influences. Meanwhile, there was a lot of drugs at that private school, by the way. Um, Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of reframing because you just think, oh, there is only one narrative around substances. Mm -hmm. There is only one narrative around Um, any of these things, especially as it pertains to how they affect people who look like me. So for me, like, this has veered a little bit, but my point is that all of this is really tied up into conversations also around power, Um, power Mm -hmm. and communities and, and the ways in which um, vulnerabilities and different things like this can be weaponized against folks so that they Mm -hmm. have less Mm -hmm. and that the status quo is maintained. Mm -hmm. So all that is tied up into all of my thinking around all of this is my point. Yeah. I've been thinking yeah.
0: so much about the gentrification of drug use. Like mm-hmm. um you know ketamine ketamine I think was not so much a party drug in the in my experience in queer New York maybe 10 years ago. And it really, its use um, started coming up about that time. I just have this ridiculous story. I remember being with a, w- one of my horrible exes and we were at a bunch of his friend's house uh, and about to go out and uh, you know, a, a, a bottle of white powder hits the table and everyone starts snorting it. And I actually have never done cocaine. I don't like cocaine. I don't want to do cocaine. And I was like, oh, wow, the, you know, the cocaine. They're like, oh girl, it's ketamine. And he was like, I switched from Coke to ketamine because I spent $30,000 on Coke last year and I can't do that anymore. And ketamine is mo- it's like more affordable. I was like, this is the whole world that I have no experience with. But, you know, I I think there's a thing about ketamine being a party drug and people using it um, in that sort of euphoric way. But it actually turns out that ketamine is incredibly effective at consistent low doses at treating depression. You know, so it's the the same substance has a meaning that's associated with a very stigmatized practice, which is drugs and nightlife. But at the same time, it actually... You know, that knowledge isn't wrong. It is effective at mm-hmm. making us feel mm-hmm. better all the time, you know. And so and, and like like the constant conversation we're having around weed right now as it becomes legalized, as it becomes a, a profit center largely for upper middle class white people, while people of color are often still in jail for having sold it five years ago, the same substance to the same people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so just I, I think Den, Den is hitting on something like so real about Um, the stigma of drugs driving Mm -hmm. really like not not clear thinking we it's like work that we have to do in ourselves but it also is like it it because drugs are such a a a source of criminalization in our country that it's like it's both personal work and collective work to try to undo both how we Mm -hmm. stigmatize drugs in ourselves with which doesn't mean having a healthy relationship with them but then also trying to undo the harm that's been done to thousands and thousands of people who are in jail or have been in jail for bullshit Mm -hmm. reasons.
3: Yeah. It's such a perfect microcosm of the ways that we criminalize, but also pathologize Mm. the very same. And in fact, more resourceful behavior of sort of disenfranchised People, Mm -hmm. um, because we are on the streets finding ways to get access to the same drugs to, in fact, treat, I think, some of the Mm -hmm. psychological and social effects of systems that we can't find a way. To navigate our way out of otherwise um, meanwhile sort of you know white ladies have purses full of xanax right and that's <laughs> like a, a cozy little stereotype but if you're it's, on the street it's me i'm white i'm white right. ladies <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right exactly. I, i've always no but you're gonna
0: to... say sorry i didn't mean i didn't mean to cut you off
3: <laughs> please, please if you... the
1: the epitome of queer nightlife and drugs And the one that I always wanted to have was like Holly Hunter and Queen Latifah's club scene in Living Out Loud, where they do this choreographed (laughs) dance number in a lesbian bar to um, Mm -hmm. a a brownstone song. And I was just like, this is literally everything I've ever wanted. That's all I've ever wanted. I mean, I've never had that experience, but being an adult going to New York and being in the world, I was like, I want my Queen Latifah, Holly Hunter, Living Out Loud lesbian club dancing scene.
3: That's all I want. Yes, yes. Who among us is not dreaming of that? And just, like, the oh.
1: club version of If You Love Me by Brownstone just, like, playing as all of these, like, women are dancing around each other. And I was like, this is the most sensual scene in any film I have mm-hmm. ever seen.
0: <laughs> I, I definitely highly recommend the documentary on Jewels Catch One in Los Angeles um, and the documentary on Studio 54 in New York, um, both deeply queer, but Jewels Catch One even more queer about sort of the the peak 1980s drug gay nightlife scene that is i mean it was short-lived but it was an incredible source of both pleasure for those people and a lot of creativity came out of that of that world as well um i have a question for y'all how has your substance your relationship to substances and substance
1: use been changing over
0: quarantine
1: or is it like (laughs) What's going on? I had to pull myself from the – I mean, to be honest with you, because, like, in that first – like, in quarantine phase one, you know, first season or Mm -hmm. whatever, it was just, like, anything to get me through these two weeks. But then two weeks became a lot longer than two weeks. And I was like, actually, Mm -hmm. you know what? You can't do this. You can't do this. And I've been talking a lot with with my therapist, with Dr. John, about how, like, just the the deprivation is what affected Mm -hmm. me the most because I actually – like, I don't need drugs to feel – Um, like a psychedelic experience because people do Mm -hmm. that to me all the time. Like being Mm -hmm. with people, having a great conversation, you know what I mean? Or like, I remember Mm -hmm. when like, I I first hung out with Jenny Zhang and we just like instantly fell into platonic love and it was just like, Mm -hmm. this is, I don't need anything. Like there's something about like my interaction with people that gives me that hit of whatever and that's really Mm -hmm. what I was dealing with was like my, the absence of people had shut off some chemical process in my body. Yeah.
2: Mm. I feel like I've had a bit of a unique um, sort of relationship with that in that at the very start of the pandemic, when it was first announced that New York was going into lockdown, I absolutely went to a liquor store and I think I bought five or six bottles of wine and a thing of Bailey's because I was like, I'm going to start having Irish coffee every morning because that's what I need to get through this. And um, in fact, I have become someone who barely ever drinks at home in my apartment. Mm. Um through this time. And part of it was just that like my situation throughout the pandemic has been so crazy that like like first I was unemployed and then I was working for a startup and that I just was like working all the time. Um -hmm. but it's interesting because where I have actually grown is that now I, I can I do consume more weed. I was not Someone who consumed much mm. weed before this, but instead now I do do edibles occasionally. Um, I'm still so not used to it that I often forget I have them, so I don't do them that often. But once I Aww. once I figure once I remember that I have them, I'll be doing them a lot more regularly. I, it's I have the all most these moments where I'm like, oh, I should have done edibles at that at that moment, and I like forgot to. But it's the most really... dead
0: relationship to a substance ever.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, not because I, I forgot it. About it. But, I, but I forgot it, but yeah. Some anyway, my the, the point is that my relationship. Like, like, I want to consume more, but I find myself consuming less um, because I have less time. Mm-hmm. Instead, I'm just working all the time.
3: I'm so jealous right now, because if I could ever have forgotten that I had any drug in my house, <laughs> like, I would still be able to do them. <laughs> <laughs> I... You know, uh, I haven't I haven't uh, used a substance, as I said, in 18 years. But I will say it's sort of a weird, different perspective is that I go to recovery meetings that you've probably heard of. Um, And all of those very quickly figured out the Zoom platform and moved online. And there were people hitting bottom, crawling their asses into my Zoom recovery meetings, like Nothing I have ever seen. So many people were like, Hi, I've hit bottom. I need help. Um, And the accessibility via Zoom was really, really amazing. Um, And I can easily imagine where I would have gone with substances just based on the acceleration of my relationship to Jelly Belly Jelly (laughs) Beans over the pandemic. But it's like, are... when I met my wife, I was like, I don't eat candy because I'm a drug addict. And she was like, that feels extreme. And then <laughs> one time she left me alone with a bag full of hard candy and came back and I was like lying on the floor covered in wrappers. <laughs> and she was like, I see. <laughs>
0: I'll take <this." laughs> it's, I, um A couple of things you said, Melissa, really um, hit home to me. I mean, I, for me, I think in the quarantine times, it became more of like a routine thing. Like having a glass of wine as I cooked a dinner was like Im- an important way to break from my work day. Like I definitely was not having Irish coffee in the morning. Um, and I don't like working um, altered really. Um, I like, I don't, you know, but it, it was more like I've been in my house all day. I've been working. And so like the differentiation between the work day and the, the not work day is like my glass of wine while I'm cooking. And, um, you know, it it definitely it's part it became part of of my routine in a way where I'm trying to be like mindful of it and, you know, take <laughs> days and weeks off from from that um, and question my relationship to it. But it's also I have the feeling, you know, it's like that I want to be like Melissa's saying it's sort of like if you want to be able to continue enjoying substances it's it's important to be mindful of your relationship to them it's like i i do want to be able to continue you know um i don't really like many drugs but i i enjoy drinking and i enjoy drinking socially and i enjoy um drinking when i cook and um and so it's important for me to like be able to not have to, to take that out of my life entirely which means actually being mindful of 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 what it, what it is doing uh, to me, emotionally and physically,
1: there's a weird like. like this is gonna. I'm. Mean, this is gonna sound so cheesy, but like, I realized that like last Wednesday I had a my first reading in person reading in mm. since February 2020, and mm. that, and I'm there like. At a certain point when performing and like having a life on the road, it was like, you know, you go into the town and the kids want to hang out with you and everyone wants to. And it's just like everyone wants to drink. Everyone wants to take you out to the bar. Everyone wants to like, you know, and it's like I realized very early on that, like, if I was a touring performer, I couldn't drink while I was on tour. It just wasn't going to be something that I could maintain. And I remember like getting getting to the reading and being nervous. And like they were like, oh, the first drinks on us. They gave me a drink ticket. And I was like, "Nah." I don't want to, I want to be here for this because it was so powerful and it was so, it was mind altering. Like it, it felt like a drug. It was euphoric to be on stage again. And that is like, I don't like, I'm not, I wouldn't say like I'm addicted to it, but like that was my greatest source of like, like no drug could give me that feeling. Like Mm -hmm. no drug could like give me that feeling of like having the eyes on stage. And it was so, I like, I got up there and like, just immediately started crying. And I was like, oh my God, I missed you so much. Like all of you. And I read the hell, and I I haven't written poems in like two, three years. And so I had to read old stuff, but it was just like, I don't know, maybe a part of it was because I, I did, you know, I have acted in a couple of things in the, I'm coming to your TV set in 2022. And so I've have a different relationship to like reading stuff and like emoting in front of people and for a screen. And I just felt more connected to the, to the writing than I ever have. And also I was like, this shit's good. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I was like, I, who wrote this? I don't know if you ever feel that way, just because I feel like writing in its, of uh, in and of itself feels to me can feel to me like a mind altering substance. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I think under the influence of that, I also forget the way that you sometimes forget when you're under the influence of something else and returning to that book was nature poem, returning to it and reading it and being like, who did this? I guess ostensibly I did, but who who put these words together and and then being able to say them out loud in front of people and use my whole voice, you know the the quiet parts and and the boisterous parts and the sad parts and the happy parts. It was a real workout, and by the end of it, I was just like, "Man, I used to do this shit four or five times a week for months on end. Like that was, mm-hmm. it's pretty special." And I I I was so at. at Supercharged and then like almost bereft at the same time. Cause I was mm-hmm. like, I don't, I can't count on this. Like, I, I, it's not something that people ask me to do regularly anymore. And in fact, yeah. I was so scared after, like, after I got home, I was like, oh my God, I went out and I did a thing with people. Like, I just tested every single day for like a week after that to make sure I didn't fucking have COVID. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I feel like, Tommy, you're getting at something so real that kind of connects queerness to substance use, which is like, one, my experience of queer people is that we are deeply feeling, we get high on connection with other Mm -hmm. people, we are into sort of intimacy And there's no outlet for that in our fucked up, broken, capitalistic society. And so drugs are like an obvious solution in some ways to sort of um, sort of sublimate it into something else or shut it down. And so many of us like as a survival mechanism find art as like a much more sustainable route to sort of funneling our feelings into something and feeling connected in a way that's like ultimately not going to harm us
1: i feel like that's that's so true and i'm so every single time like writing sucks and i hate it but every time i do it i'm like i'm so (laughs) glad i found my thing because if i hadn't Mm -hmm. found my thing i i honestly don't know what my relationship to anything would be right now Mm. is also just really quick Teebs, is
2: this you admitting that at some point down the line in the future you will in fact be writing more poetry it's it's happening. It's going to happen. No, um, no. I'm sorry. I, I need the books. I'm sorry.
3: It's, it sounds like rekindling to me. I'm I'm a
1: little bit too um uh, intimate with my new lover that is writing for television, and and that lover pays a lot of attention to me. So, we <laughs> we speaking it into say, existence? That lover,
3: yeah, that's a that's a wealthy lover. So no one could blame you. Sugar, sugar <laughs> daddy,
1: pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, after that meal, I'm feeling full, but like I could fit one more thing inside of me. Den knows how I feel. Mm. You know what? Oh, no. You know what, Den? What, you know what, Den? Why don't you just... You know what, don't you That just, sounded
0: like a fart, Den. <laughs> <laughs> that really was fart-like.
1: Trying to recover. Why don't you put the cherry on our
2: top, Dee? Um, well, you know, I love putting a cherry on a top. I, sorry, I, I just like, I just make a sound. I never know what it's going to be. Frankly, I I never know. But um, anyway, so today um, it's sort of a non traditional dessert. Um, we are actually going to talk for a few minutes about um, the lum- luminary um, writer, intellectual, activist Bell Hooks, who we learned passed away yesterday. And Bell Hooks, Bell Hooks is a person whose name. I didn't hear until college, which would surprise no one. Um, But in college is where I began my exploration of of her sort of work. And that's where I began to understand the intersection with blackness and feminism um, and queerness. And these things as being really systemically oppressed. And I want to just sort of um, start with this quote. There's many quotes from many pieces of writing that Bell Hooks has done that um, mean a lot to a lot of us for many different reasons. We've heard Fran uh, quote bell hooks on the show many times actually too. Um, and so we've probably said this quote, but it's really, really important to me because it be, for me it began to give me language for how I understood myself and my identity around um, at that time identifying as a gay man and, and sort of thinking through how that fit in with my sort of politics. Um, and that's the, this quote that again is pretty famous. Queer, not as being about who you're having sex with, that can be a dimension of it, but queer as being about the self that is at odds with everything around it and has to invent and create and find a place to speak and to thrive and to live. Um, I think that that quote kind of sums up a lot of what we've even talked about in today's episode as well. This idea of always being at odds with the context around you, that that's what queerness really means and finding a way to sort of fix that situation. And a lot of times, what I feel like this quote sort of gets at is that a lot of that work begins internally, but then you have to turn that work and that focus outward to the systems that are there. And that's where Bell Hooks was so extraordinary, because it was like she did that internal work and then did all of this external work for everyone, for the world around her. Um, and it's just an enormous, enormous loss um, that a lot of will leave a lot of us feeling bereft. But um, we get to have all of the work that she did, both the activism work and the the literary work, um, as guideposts for our future. And so there's mm-hmm. blessing in leaving a legacy. So I wanted to say that, too. I was going to be like, Who,
1: do you want to go around and share a favorite Bill Hooks quotes? But that was mine. You already took it. <laughs> Sorry, Jeeves. <dudes.
0: laughs> um,
3: it's so good. No, Melissa, go ahead.
0: No, Moosa, go ahead.
3: I was just going to say, yeah, that is my favorite. And as you were reading that quote, Dan, I was thinking, like, that is the common denominator at the core of every little conversation we've had in this hour and maybe, like, most of the conversations in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And I would also say that, you know, there are a lot of thinkers and activists and feminists and particularly Black women feminists who have changed my thinking and my writing and my life. And bell hooks in particular, like just the spectrum of her work, it is so intimate. Like mm-hmm. the, the record, the archive that she's created of her own journey as an individual mm-hmm. through relationships with men, through domestic abuse situations, mm-hmm. through black girlhood, all the way through sort of being, um, becoming an activist, becoming more of an artist. And she kept that like vulnerable, intimate, like yeah. transparency about her own process, which feels like such important role modeling right Ooh, now. Yeah like she also taught me how to be a teacher teaching to transgress was the first thing i read of hers and like i still like have no top on my head because she blew it off so far
0: yeah teaching to transgress is one of my favorite books of hers and it's definitely i mean everyone reads all about love and they should but anyone who's a teacher or thinks about teaching should absolutely read teaching to transgress to try to understand the 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 possibility of the classroom the, the 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 question that that space opens up uh, and for changing the lives of youth and everyone. um, I want to, you know, I've actually, um, I've been really emotional about this one. Um I, I did I actually got to meet Belle once through um friend of the show and my good friend Darnell Moore uh and when I found out she passed later that day um someone who was with us that day actually posted a picture to Twitter and tagged me in it and I didn't know that a picture existed uh of me with Belle and so that was really um really really emotional and the, and the one thing that um you know I know from having met her briefly and from Darnell and from her other close friends bell was funny um and she was a thought spelled how t-h-o-t um you know she was she was a i i think it's so easy when someone are such titans of thought to forget that that, that they were bell was also an incredibly generous and funny and um light-hearted individual and was lovely to be around and made people feel you know when you meet someone like bell hooks you feel kind of like like literally like everything you're gonna say is gonna be so awkward and she just took all of that away. She was just like, just like such a lovely person, um, to be around. And I just, I do want to read one quote, um, of hers, uh, before I say my final thing, because this is a quote was, you know, sometimes you read a book and you read a quote where you're like, Oh, well that explains my entire first 18 years of life. Uh, and the bell hooks quote that did that for me was that the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of males is not violence towards women. Instead, patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of physical, Uh, of psychic self-mutilation that they kill off the emotional parts of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault his self-esteem. And like, that was just my entire childhood in a working class town. I was very incapable of, of turning off my emotional self and violence was enacted upon me, both psychic and physical over and over and over again for that reason. And that like, reading that one dumb paragraph, like healed me. It it made me understand that violence and conceptualize it and understand in a more explicit way that it wasn't my fault, that it was actually my gift, the gift of queerness that I had in me that refused that I refused to dehumanize myself. And that's why um, I had those, you know, experiences. So um, I, I really, I've been thinking so much about Belle since she passed and I really just hope no one knew she was sick except for those close to her that that as she transitioned out of life that she just could feel all of our love and appreciation that she knew um and transitioned out of life with all of us holding her um in the way that i think we are now i just i cannot appreciate someone's work and personhood anymore
1: Amen. well said yeah. This episode of Food for Thought is made possible by the generous, unequivocal support of Rosé and our new home at Stitcher. Our producer mm-hmm. is Alexandra De Palma. Subscribe, rate, and review us five stars on iTunes. My name is Tommy Tebes Pico. You can find me at hey Tebes H-E-Y-T-E-B-S, on Instagram because I deleted Twitter.
0: I'm Joseph Osmondson. You can find me at www.josephosmondson.com, where, as always, you can pre-order my book, Virology. They'll be out in June.
2: And I'm Den Michelle Norris, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at The Den Michelle. Um, and you can follow or become a member of Electric Lit, where I am the editor in chief, and find a lot more of my work and my thoughts around writing and literature there.
3: And I'm Melissa Phoebos, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at, at Melissa Phoebos. And I have a new book coming out. It's called Body Work uh, The Radical Power of Personal Narrative. So, if you need a pep talk for your memoir mm-hmm. um, and about how to expunge the internalized voices of white supremacy and patriarchy so that you can finish your book, um, <laughs> you can pre order it wherever books are sold. Mm.
1: Find us on Instagram as Gay Sluts Who Read and join us on Facebook and Twitter at Food for Thought Pod. And finally, send your questions, thoughts, concerns, and dick pics. Dick pics. To picks. thoughts at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. As always, that's food, the number four, and thought spelled how?
0: T H
1: H O
2: T D E. That was so bad.
0: Oh, by all. Bye, all